I'm David Mosscroft. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. There are plenty of criticisms of democracy in Canada. While the country ranks in the upper echelons of mainstream reviewers concerned with global comparisons, there are disconcerting cracks in the foundation of our self-government. Indeed, the foundation itself is fundamentally flawed. One could, and should, point out the country's inequities and inequalities, embedded colonialism, vestigial electoral system, and so forth. But on this episode, our focus is on a sort of imminent critique of Canada's Westminster system itself, on its own terms. And so we ask, what's wrong with Canada's democracy? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Emmett McFarlane, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Waterloo and author of Constitutional Pariah, Reference Re-Senate Reform and the Future of Parliament. Let's start by getting everyone on the same page. So what is Westminster democracy and how does it function in Canada? Sure. The Westminster system is named after the model system in the United Kingdom, which is actually uh, the Palace of Westminster, where where the UK uh, House of Commons and House of Lords sit. Um, and when we refer to Westminster democracies, and at least in terms of the the sizable countries, we we tend to be talking about Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and and the UK. And it's really a system um, that establishes government uh, indirectly. Uh, and, and in Canada, we very most often contrast our system with the American one, with its system of, of uh, distinct and, and complete separation of powers and checks and balances, where, they, where they, they have a head of government and head of state who is elected directly uh, in the presidency, uh, who does not sit in in their legislature, Congress? Um, in in our system, the government, which is the the cabinet uh, and the prime minister, uh, also sit in the legislature, and they are to be held accountable to the legislature. Uh, and so, in high school, I think most people will have heard of the idea of a fusion of powers, um, and and. And so we have this indirectly elected government uh, where the elected representatives of parliament determine who form uh, government at the end of the day. Um, and, and we'll be talking, I think, uh, about the crux of this system uh, that rests on the confidence convention um, that so long as, as the government is to remain in power, it must maintain the confidence uh, of the House of Commons, of a majority of members of the House. Um, and what what this all really means is that the functioning of the legislature um, is not primarily even just the body that passes laws, but it's the uh, body that determines both who sits in government and that maintains the the levers of accountability, at least on the political side of our system. Um, uh, each of the countries I. I kind of mentioned as part of the Westminster system have, you know, slightly different cultures. Uh, some have slightly different procedural rules for their parliaments, um, different degrees of partisanship. All of these inform how things function in practice. But the theoretical core of the Westminster system 
all share these core traits, all rest on um, this, this core element of responsible government, regardless of whether they have written constitutions um, like, like Canada and Australia or, or largely unwritten ones like the United Kingdom. I, I'm glad we're, we're focusing on this and going into depth before we get into it because the, the misunderstanding of the system is widespread. And even you know, a couple weekends ago, there was a trending topic on Twitter in Canada, was Kim Campbell elected or not? And when Twitter tried to clarify, they said the, the prime minister is the leader of the party, has the most seats in parliament. They didn't even get the clarification right. And so there was this giant debate on Twitter as to whether or not Kim Campbell was elected. And it struck me that, well, there was a real disconnect between some people's normative sense of what it means to be elected and how the Westminster system returns a government. Yeah, and what's troubling uh, to me a lot of the time is that even even Canadian journalists sometimes push back on, oh, you're just being pedantic saying the prime minister is not elected, and this is how people understand the system, so this is how it's it's fine to talk about it that way. But this has enormous implications, right? Mm -hmm. So anytime uh, we have a hung legislature in this country or a minority government situation, um, Questions arise immediately about government formation and who gets the first turn to try to set an agenda and lead a government. Um, and in our system, um, it's not the person with the most seats. It's the person who can control confidence, right? So a party could come in second in terms of seat standing in a legislature, but still garner the support it needs to, to, to form government. And whenever we talk about prime ministers as elected, or indeed government mandates or governments being elected, we actually just confuse the issue. We make it harder to understand on those rare occasions where the, these distinctions really matter. Um, and so, I, yeah, it's, it's always aggravating as a, as a scholar of this stuff to see um, how kind of blithely even informed commentators treat the system. And politicians, I mean, I want to use this to set up the broader critique. Politicians cynically mobilize that misunderstanding as well, right? Try to get what they want. I'm thinking back to when I was in British Columbia in 2017, and there was a hung parliament. It was profoundly close. In fact, the liberals there had more seats than the New Democrats. And so there was a battle over who could get the Greens. And uh, ultimately, the, the New Democrats ended up governing because the premier couldn't hold the confidence of the, of the legislature, but the dialogue at the time was, oh, she, it's Christy Clark must be the premier because she has the most seats. And, and the liberals were keen to exploit that misunderstanding. It seems like this is a, a, a more general problem in the country too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the same thing came up during the so-called prorogation crisis in 2008 when um, you know, the conservatives objected to this, this coalition that had formed and had expressed in, its intent to, to vote no confidence. And some of the, the rhetoric used in, in the intervening period after prorogation was provided completely misrepresented how the system actually works. Um, I'm not sure many lessons are learned from these examples because uh, they, they, I think, in in the minds of many Canadians, they're kind of these ephemeral moments, and and you know, the typical Canadian is too busy living their life and working their their jobs to worry about the minutia of of the systems. But it's a little more galling when we can't always count on 
the media to get it right or when we see politicians, I think, often deliberately misleading about how the system actually works. And so now that we have a sense of that and, and let's let's trace some of the fault lines, because what I want to do here is do an imminent critique of the Westminster system. There's lots of external critiques we could do, and I, I talk about those briefly in the intro, but I want to do a critique of the system on its own merits on, on how it's meant to work. And I want to start with responsible government. So, you know, can you give us a quick rundown of, of the principle of responsible government? You've touched on it a bit already, but also uh, how does it play out in Canada? Both you can draw federally, provincially, both, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so the core of the core of the principle is um, that confidence convention, right? So uh, any government needs to maintain the confidence of a majority of members of the House of Commons at the at the federal level, or just the provincial legislature uh, within the provinces. Um, that that assumes a lot, though, right? There's a lot yeah. unstated in the confidence convention, um, and so when you think of that in theory, you think about uh, a group of elected representatives, um, it, two or more political parties, one of those parties uh, inhabiting the government side in in a in a in more theory than happens in Canada in practice. Um, you could have a multi-party government coalition. Um, we've had flirtations even with uh, less formal accords between more than one party to to support the other. Um, and you have an, an official opposition, an opposition bench that is designed to critique and try to hold the government account. Now, within that, we often don't pay enough attention to the division between the government, the, the members of cabinet and the prime minister or premier, and the rest of that party caucus, the backbench. <laughs> Um, because in our system, the backbench MPs or MPPs or MLAs should also be holding the government to account. They, they are not there primarily as government members, although we often refer to them as such. They are not the government. Um, uh, an, uh, an MP may belong to the governing party, but if they are not um, in the cabinet, if they're not a cabinet minister or cabinet secretary, um, in theory, anyway, the Westminster model says that they should be part of the legislature holding the government to account. Um, so I think the first problem I would point to among many with the distinction between theory and practice when it comes to responsible government is the nature of partisanship that has emerged in Canada. Um, in fact, that has existed in Canada for at least my entire lifetime. Um, and that is a, a, a degree of partisanship that has transformed politics and the workings of parliament and, and provincial legislatures into team sports where dissension is immediately regarded as controversial, if not removable offenses um, where the voting history in the modern era particularly show that um, voting against one's own party is extraordinarily rare. Uh, and, and this subverts the principle of responsible government in a lot of ways, because mm-hmm. what it means is that if a government secures a, a single party majority, which happens often enough under our system, uh, our electoral system, 
um, it means that they really need not fear being held to account uh, for for the life of a parliament. Um, only in the event of a of a serious scandal um, or the emergence of intra party infighting is a is a government ever at risk of being held to account in the most serious function of of actually losing authority, let alone losing policy. Uh, disagreements or debates or, or having having certain government bills being voted down in the course of doing business, which is also almost unheard of. Um, and so in, in, in practice, you know, responsible government um, can be a bit ephemeral. It, it emerges uh, certainly more often in, in minority government contexts, but it generally is, is this rare thing. I, I would say even in the minority context, it seems... Governments engineer their own defeats to call elections right. at least as often as they are defeated in in a sincere sense. Which is, I would imagine, what we're going to see in 2021, 2022 with the current parliament. It's It sometimes looks like that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because I, I, you know, I wrote about this last week, and, and, and I, so, because I've been thinking about this quite a bit, and part of the reason I wanted to talk to you, and uh, one of the things I didn't dig into in the piece, but but want to dig into here, is uh, the centralization of power in the office of the leader, whether that leader is the prime minister or a, an opposition leader, official or otherwise. And it strikes me that you know it's one thing to be a partisan in, in an ideological sense that you truly believe in the party's vision, and you might be a government side MP or or not, and you want to so you want to support that vision. It's a different thing to be sort of cynically interested in power and promotion, <laughs> and that the, the, the centralization of power in the hands of the leader allows them to wield an awful lot of power that undermines responsible government. As what, to what extent is it that that centralization a problem? Yeah, I mean, so I, we can. I, I'd start off by saying it's possible to overstate the centralization thesis. So sometimes we do. We look at prime ministerial power in this country, and we kind of we don't we don't really think hard and long about some of the real checks that exist in our system. We have, you know, some of our officers of parliament, like the auditor general are fairly strong, independent checks. The, the Senate ironically uh, <laughs> uh, in, in recent years has become actually a significant check to the extent that it is, it is proposing amendments to government legislation and amendments that are often accepted uh, the Supreme Court and the courts generally, the Constitution itself, can be an enormous check uh, in terms of policy, in both in terms of federalism and and rights, um, and and the media and scrutiny can still play a role. And and indeed, caucus, you know, we don't know what happens inside caucus meetings, um, perhaps for good reason, but and and the irony that people like. Uh, Ian Brody and others have written about is that you know most the most democratic accountability probably happens behind closed doors, right? right? <laughs> um, in that there you know leaders can be can can face serious scolding in caucus meetings without the public ever being really aware of it. That all said, uh, our our party leaders in in this country at at both levels of government have enormous authority, almost an absurd degree of an authority, and not all of it is institutional, right? So some of it is. Some of it is derived from the fact that if you're a backbencher in the governing caucus, 
and you might have your eye on a cabinet spot, you're more likely to fall in line and and vote, be a loyal kind of soldier in the hopes that maybe at the next cabinet shuffle you get rewarded. And that's often, you know, pointed to as one example of where party discipline emanates. But there are much bigger problems in both both institutionally and culturally. One is that the parties themselves have simply allowed leaders to have almost full sovereignty. Um, our party leaders can decide not to sign the nomination cards to for candidacy in in individual writings, mm-hmm. and so the every party every every even elected representatives job is on the line the next election if the prime minister uh say opts not to to sign their nomination card that's an incredible amount of authority to give someone um in what is supposed to be more of a collective enterprise um and even even culturally you know the way some mps talk about their leaders as their boss or or what have you when really functionally the system is supposed to operate the other way around, right? The leader should be serving at the pleasure of the caucus, not not the caucus at the pleasure of the leader. Um, and so we we have this really absurd degree of of, of party discipline in at, at all levels of government, um, uh, because this, this holds true in in most provinces as well. Um, and it's it's not always clear what can be done about that, right? Like, so I mean, the obvious things are well, let's get rid of this rule that party leaders can just sign the, the nomination card. Let's let's empower caucuses to remove leaders if necessary. Well, guess what? We've tried that, and we've tried that actually quite recently mm-hmm. with, with um, <laughs> Michael Chong's Reform Act and the parties. The the party representatives themselves did not actually support strengthening their own position relative to their leaders. Um, and so I don't know, I, when I, you know, I don't know what to conclude from that. I don't know if, if, if these people who are devoting their lives to public service, um, and one assumes you go into politics uh, out of an interest in, in doing something good, um, only to get there and find out that your role is actually to be given scripted bromides for question period or to appear on the news and say what the premier's office has told you to say. Um, you know, those exit surveys and interviews from, um, uh, oh man, I'm blanking on the organization. Samara? Samara, yeah. The exit interviews that Samara Canada conducts, you know, yeah. half of these MPs come out of this completely... Uh, depressed mm-hmm. about the status of of democracy, of, the, of how parliament works. They're appalled at at how much uh, how little authority they had. But they're the ones who are empowered to change that. And as an outside observer, it's a it's it's an incredibly frustrating thing to watch. Now, what about my pet idea, which I've taken from Ned Franks, who wrote about it? I mean in a few places, but the Parliament of Canada was where it stands out, this idea that if we had more MPs, we, we'd stand a chance of looking a bit more like, say, the United Kingdom than we do ourselves, because there would be fewer rewards doled out, there'd be more caucus power compared to the leader's power. Uh, this is something I happen to be sort of intuitively drawn to and support. Uh, is there a way to empower caucus by changing that ratio of leadership to, to caucus members? 
I think there's something to that in that uh, once it becomes clear to a greater proportion of MPs that they are not ever going to be in cabinet, <laughs> right. they might they might turn their sights to a more serious and vociferous exercise of their own role as backbenchers. They might take the committee work even more seriously than they already do. Um, and indeed, the fact that many caucus members won't even be able to sit on committees if we right. were to say double the size of parliament. Um, you know, you'll, you'll always have some who are just devoted to their constituency work, others trying desperately to get that Hail Mary private members bill through somehow. Um, but you might actually start to see a, a growing import of the role of the backbench um, in, in doing what it actually can do, and that is hold the government to account. It becomes a lot harder for a party leader to hold out trinkets over the heads of members if there are that many more members. Now, that all said, I think such a reform would, would hopefully happen with some degree of reform about how nominations happen at the riding level. If there was a way to really enliven riding democracy in this country, um, for one thing, yes, removing the leader's power to decide who gets to represent the party in, in each riding would be a good start. Um, but, you know, we have, we have this culture that doesn't, you know, doesn't even require people to live in the ridings that they're seeking to represent. That they are, they're literally parachute candidates brought in from the leader's office um, uh, who might not even live in the same city, let alone the same riding. Um, and that, I don't think that's particularly healthy because it, 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 what it tells you is that politics is this insider's game, um, this team sport, and not an element of grassroots democracy the way it could be. Um, that said, we there's an antipathy to regulating parties in this country. They are, yeah. they are simultaneously one of the most important elements of our system, but they are seen as these private, purely private entities that can just regulate themselves. Um, and that's, that is, I think, a mental block we need to get past. And we need to start thinking about, I think, more serious regulation of parties. What about ministers? I want to focus on ministers now, and then we'll get on to the courts and finally the Senate. But what about ministerial accountability and ministerial responsibility? I want to touch on, on both, but focus mostly on ministerial responsibility. It seems to me that the latter may have never been particularly robust in Canada. I, I don't know. But currently, it seems to be an utter shambles that just the, the, con the idea of ministerial responsibility has eroded such that these folks are getting away with things that I can't imagine a healthy democracy would let them get away with. And for, for different reasons, I think of the heritage minister in bill C10. It's one of the worst managed bills I've ever seen in my life, but he remains. Uh, can you give us a sense of the state of those uh, principles? Yeah. I mean, and so there, there's, there's collective aspects and individual aspects. And when we talk about collective ministerial responsibility, we're, we're, we're kind of pointing back to the confidence convention really, because it's about the government accountability in, in a broad sense and embedded in there are, are things like cabinet confidence and, 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 um, and, you know, the fact that cabinet has to march lockstep, um, 
at the individual level, you know, this is something that Donald Savoie really wrote about in governing, uh, governing from the center over 20 years ago now. Um, in that there seems to have been uh, a steady erosion of the principle that it is the cabinet minister that is responsible for everything that happens under his or her portfolio. Um, and what Savoie tracked was an increasing tendency, even going back to the 80s, of uh, a willingness on the part of ministers to pass the buck on to senior public servants in, in their departments for when things go wrong. Uh, we've increasingly, I think, seen, uh, in fact, public servants being brought before committees in Parliament to answer questions when things have gone wrong or even in the midst of controversies, which isn't really how it's supposed to work in theory, yeah. right? The political accountability is tied to the authority to make decisions. Um, it is inherently the political pos position and, and ministerial responsibility is supposed to uphold the neutrality of the public service. Um, it's supposed to prevent the public service which is supposed to have this degree of independence and certainly of nonpartisanship from being dragged into the political scene. Public servants are supposed to, you know, they, they lose out on not being individually rewarded for their work in terms of, of getting public recognition, but they are also shielded from taking blame or being punished for the decisions that ought to be tied to democracy, tied to responsible government. And this is why we are supposed to, to hold individual ministers to account. Now, the, these last few years, I think, if anything now, like if Savoie were to, to rewrite this, it, <laughs> I think that it's become completely unraveled. Yeah. Um, you know, you pointed to one example. Uh, the other example I would point to that really jumps out is the Minister of Long-Term Care in Ontario. Oh, yes. Who, who has overseen... <laughs> who has overseen devastation, a veritable bloodbath of death throughout the long-term care system, has lifted zero fingers to do anything about it. Um, and the, because Doug Ford, the premier, stands by her, she has not done the honorable thing, which would have been to resign. Um, uh, I don't know how a self-respecting person could preside over this calamity as long as she has and and still appear in public. And accept no responsibility. Alone, like blame other governments, past governments. She yeah, blamed the, blaming the, governments. The yeah, <laughs> blaming governments that haven't sat for decades. You know, you've been in office since 2018. You've had literal years to do something about this problem. And it becomes unacceptable to blame predecessor governments at that point. And, that the, the, and let's be clear, this is something that parties of all stripes do. The, the Trudeau liberals are still talking about the Harper period as if it wasn't six, seven years ago now. Um, and so I, I look at this ag aghast because, again, I don't know what to do about it. So long as the, the, the party leader, the premier or the prime minister holds all the power, um, and as long as they they protect the individual ministers. Um, and sometimes there are very obvious political reasons why they might want to do that. Um, 
that doesn't make that doesn't make it acceptable. And so uh, we, you know, in some ways, I I don't know that we have individual ministerial responsibility anymore. In at least at least in the way it's supposed to play out. I'm trying to look for silver linings in the clouds and now we move on to the courts so i it's going <laughs> to i'm not sure it's going to get better but this is something you've written extensively about including in your book uh, governing from the bench and it's something that i find deeply irritating because I, I don't want to flatten it too much but it seems like a lot of the uh, of the things that people like me in this country happen to like about it we've gotten from the courts in part or in whole and I, I wonder what you make of the argument that Canadian politicians not only defer to the courts, but often hide behind them, especially when it comes to sort of controversial issues uh, and, and use them for political cover. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm currently working on another book manuscript um, with Janet Hebert and Anna Drake, and we're uh, tentatively titled Legislating Under the Charter. Um, and so we're actually looking at highly salient policy issues like medical aid and dying, sex work. Uh, safe consumption sites, criminal justice policy, um, and on almost all of these issues, right? The 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 standard of of government is um, to either have waited for the courts to try to address issues. Um, the case of of assisted dying is a really good one because for years leading up to the 2015 Carter decision by the court that that struck down the prohibition on assisted suicide. For years, public opinion polls overwhelmingly showed opposition to mm-hmm. the absolute prohibition that was in the criminal code uh, to the tune of like 85%. So you had the public 85% opposed to the law that, that stood. Um, the law that stood was, I think, blatantly a, an individual human rights violation on one's autonomy to make decisions about the end of their own lives. And yet, government after government, of whether conservative or, or liberal, sat on their hands and did nothing and waited for the court to take that on. Because the, the political risks, even, even with that degree of public support, were so high once you get around to designing what a system of access should look like. Mm-hmm. The same thing, frankly, holds in the current status of our... Uh, sex work laws and particularly our prostitution laws, right? So in response to the 2013 Bedford decision, the Harper government passes a law that brings back some of the impugned provisions, but then also criminalizes the purchase of sex. Most constitutional experts see this as just replicating the harms that the court identified when it struck down the, the older laws in the first place. I have no, I have very little doubt that the prime minister... And, and the PMO are well aware of the rights problems inherent in the existing legislation, but they haven't touched them. Why? Because really the only plausible uh, policy uh, approach at this point would be to regulate the sale of sex on health and safety grounds and to effectively legalize it rather than these indirect prohibitions. But doing so would be enormously controversial. And so all of the incentive is to leave this to the courts. And now we're seeing lower court decisions that are slowly declaring parts of those laws unconstitutional yet again, a process that takes years. And in the meantime, how many people uh, in the sex work industry uh, are living 
uh, much more dangerously mm-hmm. uh, than they need to otherwise if, if the government had taken this on. I mean, we could go through a list from same-sex marriage to um, any number of issues, abortion, access, all sorts of questions that um, politicians have largely deferred to courts. Um, some of this clearly has to do with the charter um, and and the fact that our courts, unlike any of the other Westminster systems that we, we've talked about today, our courts are empowered to invalidate legislation. And in some, in some cases have taken it upon themselves to basically prescribe legislation and what it should look like. And, and all of the incentives are there on these highly salient, controversial moral issues, especially, to leave these, these questions to the courts um, and let let the Supreme Court uh, resolve controversy rather than burn any political capital that it might take to do the right thing or to, to approach, approach these policy issues and these rights issues in the way that they could be. And, and this is mirrored in the, the quality of debate we see in, in Parliament over mm-hmm. these issues. So one of the things we're doing in this new book is an in-depth examination of Hansard and committee debates over things like medical aid and dying and, and prostitution. Um, and we wanted to see, uh, so how often are, are elected politicians, whether the governing side or the opposition side, invoking the charter? How much are they talking about rights versus how much are they actually really just talking about what they think the court meant or what they think the court will do with uh, legislation? And it's almost entirely the latter. Um, there's no sense that our elected leaders are taking it upon themselves to try to understand what the charter means independent of what the courts might happen to say on it, let alone developing their own robust and principled rights-based justifications for making law and policy. And that, that I think, is a huge problem, not only, not only because courts are unelected actors and and that whole democratic debate about judicial review, which I, I don't know that is is very helpful. I, I think Canadians have accepted the role of courts quite clearly. Mm-hmm. But more problematically, the fact that the courts can actually get this stuff wrong too, right? And what happens when it does? If we have this culture of deference, we could we could end up allowing some very bad decisions to stand. Um, and and indeed, um, you know, there are, there are questions concerning upcoming cases on things like extreme intoxication defense for sexual assault cases. Um, there's, there's, there's serious questions about the design of the healthcare system and whether a healthcare system that effectively preempts privatized medicine creates wait lists. Um, you know, the court in 2005 came very close to saying that a key principle of the way healthcare systems in Canada are designed is unconstitutional. Right. Um, but in a culture of deference to courts, Parliament would be much less likely to stand up and try to push back on some of these judicial decisions. And where where it has, and in fact, in in some ways, the the initial medical aid and dying legislation pushed back a bit on what the court said in terms of threshold for access. The courts end up getting the final word anyway because there's a subsequent rounds of litigation. Right. Um, so I think 
you know, this is this is the bread and butter of what I study. And I think it's actually hugely problematic, not just from an institutional perspective of who's making the decisions, but from a cultural perspective in that we don't seem to have principled discourse and debate over policy and legislation in the most important venue for it, which would be parliament or, or a provincial legislature. Um, instead, we have this equivocating over what the courts might say. And, and it all that devolves into is partisan sniping, really. Um, so I, yeah, I don't think our, our political culture around rights and around public policy uh, are, is particularly healthy as a result of all that. Well, we're down to our last sliver of life here, and it's the Senate. So it's putting a lot of pressure on the Senate to, to give us something to look forward to or to be hopeful about. And I'm actually sort of bullish on the Senate lately. I certainly think it's much better than it was a decade ago. But it is also the subject of your latest book. And so I want to get into this question of how the Senate is evolving now under the Trudeau government and what it says about the state and future of Canadian democracy. I mean, to, to me, there's some, there's a little bit of hope there. But then, of course, the old problem of, well, how much power do we really want to give the Senate? So wh where does that leave us? Yeah, no, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was because, you know, I, I had a, I have a sense that the most significant reform to Canadian, to, to Canada's parliament has happened and it hasn't gotten a lot of attention, right? So in 2016, the Liberal government institutes this merit-based nonpartisan appointments process for the Senate. And it doesn't sound like a huge reform in the grand scheme of things, in part because Canadians don't spend a lot of time thinking about the Senate unless there's an expense scandal happening or some other thing that the Senate has done that raises people's ire because it's this unelected reward for partisan service. Um, this reform cut years of practice of, of patronage. Um, so the Senate was quite an intensely partisan body, maybe not quite as partisan as the lower house, but enormously partisan. And suddenly untethering that to the point where now a majority, a significant majority of the Senate are unaligned or independent senators. And what we've seen in the last five years is a tremendous growth of uh, legislative activity on the part of the Senate. What's interesting is that the Senate's not actually blocking legislation. It's not voting down government bills left and right. That still hasn't even happened in the in the in this newly reformulated Senate yet. But what it has done is exponentially increase the amendment rate. So the Senate has proposed amendments to roughly a third of government bills, where in the decades prior to that, um, it was range from like four to eight percent um and and some of these some of these amendments have been have been quite positive um the senate enhanced legislation around um quote-unquote indian status um to 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 try to improve that as a way of ensuring more equitable uh recognition for for people of indigenous descent um, and dealing with a, a sexist uh, lineage uh, law that that had stood for for many decades, um, it is it has improved the legislation around medical aid and dying in in the most recent round, um, a, a whole host of things that the Senate can be really useful. The danger is, as you suggested, 
the Senate might overstep at some point. And as an appointed rather than elected body, it needs to be careful about what its role is. And I think it can serve a, a very important function as an advisory body for legislation, as a body that undertakes, as it has traditionally done, long-term study on important policy and social issues and, and make recommendations on that front. For me, you know, I think people might, if they read my book, they might be a little more bullish on the Senate as, as you are. Um, but for me, the real test for the new Senate is what happens when there's a change in government. Because right. one, of the, one of the valid concerns is that even as we've had these, these nonpartisan appointments, a lot of Trudeau's Senate appointments still look awfully comfortably, possibly liberal, even if they're, the individuals aren't liberals, but in, in, in an ideological sense. And the, there was real valid concern that had the conservatives under Andrew Scheer won the last election, that suddenly the Senate would have become this big veto player and would have been exercising its formal powers in, I think, a manifestly undemocratic way, simply out of an ideological opposition to the new government. And that would be quite dangerous. It would be dangerous for the legitimacy of the Senate, uh, for sure. Um, but it would have, yeah, it, it, it could do irreparable damage to this this reform effort and and to the utility of the Senate as a as a body. We're approaching time, so I want to close out on a sort of general assessment. I mean, uh, uh, because uh, plainly, a lot of things in the country are institutionally functioning adequately, if not as well as we might hope. But we don't know what the future is going to look like, and we haven't really run into a mega crisis. I don't. I don't, nothing I would call a mega crisis, although it seems to be a lot of deeply disconcerting issues. Uh, where do you put us in the years to come? Are there, are there hopes that we're going to have more institutional reforms? Are we concerned about the fault lines or, or, or perhaps a, a bigger eruption to mix some metaphors? Yeah, I mean, so my concerns are the furthering erosion of, of, the, of the distinction between how the Westminster system should function in theory and how it's working in practice, where this, this trend line of, of ignoring ministerial responsibility continues. Our lack, of, our lack of transparency and accountability in a lot of ways are a huge problem. If I have hope, it's that the one thing that might cure this is, ironically, the fact that a a party leader could come in and, and take power and has enormous power to change things, right? And so if the right person were to come along and could and was charismatic and intelligent and principled enough to want to come in and reform some of this system, and a lot of this wouldn't even necessarily require kind of the mega constitutional reform, right? A lot of this is stuff that parliament could do unilaterally uh, to improve its, itself. Um, my hope is that you, someone comes along, sees these problems, and rather than worrying about securing their own power in the short term, they're thinking about their successors and not wanting those people to be able to exercise that authority with impunity in the future. Um, uh, you know, I'm not often inspired by the people currently inhabiting our <laughs> politics, right? So I don't want to sound... Uh, utopian about this, but that that is something I cling to, right? If that we can get the right people in power, even in the short term, they might be able to bring in reforms that constrain the power for the when the wrong people get in in the future. 
Well, that is an excellent point on which to end. To a nice hopeful end <laughs> in what has otherwise been a bit of a bloodbath. But I, <laughs> so thank you very much, Emma McFarland, for joining me here today. I very much appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And as always, thanks to Mira Ahmad and Aaron Reynolds to make this podcast not just possible, but much better than it would be without them. And to all of you listening, and keep in mind, we don't elect prime ministers in this country. Uh, and when in doubt, uh, have a look at uh, how how we govern ourselves. Is that what it was called? What was the old Eugene Forsey volume? Was it how we go? How Canadians govern themselves, I think it's called. Something like that, yeah. It's available. <laughs> it's available as a PDF, as are... And uh, PDF uh, and, of course, hard copies uh, Emmett McFarland's books, which I uh, highly recommend you check out uh, through UBC Press. And, and is, the latest is UBC Press as well, right? It is, yes. Yes, yeah, so through UBC Press and follow him on Twitter where you can learn all kinds of things. And we will see you back here in a couple of weeks. Bye.